right, everybody, it's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the summit, and uh, we're continuing in the gospel according to uh, Mark. It's, it's kind of interesting. Um, we're going to talk about, as you kind of just saw from what we just read, we're going to talk about Satan, demons. Um, it's going to be a little bit weird, I guess. Um, it was funny, I was telling the, uh, the morning crew you know, we just launched this morning gathering, and this was like the first time we had daylight savings time, the bad daylight savings time with the morning crew. And I already told them, I was like, if you need proof that this is, you know, Satan, demons, spiritual warfare exists, all you need is daylight savings time when you just started a morning gathering. It was brutal. Um, but we're really, really glad that um, all of you are here. You were the wise ones who stayed in the PM, so you didn't have to deal with this. And uh, we're really glad that you're here. So um, I know many of you are new. Uh, my name's Brian. My uh, wife is Megan. I have a 13-month-old daughter, Hannah. And it's pretty interesting. Uh, Hannah, when she start, first started to learn how to crawl, had this propensity to try to throw her sweet little body. I mean, she is the cutest little baby ever. Like, that's not bias. It's just the truth. And, um, like, she would, anytime we would place her on a high object, she would try to throw that beautiful, sweet little body off the edge of that high object as quickly as possible. Um, not that we as parents are, like, placing her on high objects. I'm just saying, like, for those of you who have small kids, you know how this works, where it's like you're just getting ready for the day. You place your baby in the middle of the bed, and you think, like, you're fine. You know, you can just, like, at least put on a shirt. Um, but no, like, for Hannah, like, you would start to put on that shirt, and she would make a beeline for the edge of the bed, and she'd go, bah, 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 and, like, she would not slow down towards the edge, and she would just hurl her body over the edge of that bed, leading me uh, to catch her sweet little body inches away from hitting the ground uh, on a number of times, and now we, uh, we don't do that uh, anymore. Now, the, the reason the reason I start with that this evening is because I feel like my challenge with Hannah is very similar to the challenge that I face tonight as we talk about Satan and demons uh, for three reasons. One, um, the danger is very real. Like, just for my daughter, there's very much a danger right in front of her, even though she can't see it. In the same way, what you see from a story like this one, uh, with Jesus being tempted and tested by uh, Satan out in the wilderness, is the, the, the danger is very real, even if we can't see it in front of you. We can't touch it, and since it, it's still there, um, even though we're not aware that it's there. Um, the second challenge is that um, not only is the, uh, the danger there, but we can't sense it. In fact, um, I was trying to figure out why does my daughter do this? Like, why does she just kind of, like, hurl her body off the edge of, like, objects like that, um, and apparently she, she lacks something that's called spatial awareness. Um, she is just unable to sense that type of like, hey, I'm on the edge of a bed, I'm about to fall and plummet to, to something very sad. Um, she just doesn't have, like, just in the way somebody who's blind is unable to see or somebody who's deaf is unable to hear. Like, my daughter at this point in her life lacks the cognitive capacity to be able to sense uh, what it is that's going on. And the same thing for us. Like, we also lack the cognitive capacity to say, like, oh, yeah, it's just kind of like this. You know, it's, it's, no, I mean, as we talk about this, the reason probably a number of you in this room already are kind of like, this doesn't apply to me. Um, I, you know, I don't believe in any of this stuff is because you and I lack the cognitive capacity to see kind of what is going on in the spiritual realm. The third challenge is um, not only is the threat there and not only can we not sense it, but I really lack the vocabulary in order to explain it particularly well. Just like with my daughter, like, yeah, I mean, I could. I could like sit down with her on the bed and say like, sweetheart, you know, um, you know, it's makes daddy very sad when you throw your body off the edge of the bed. Um, please don't do that. Like, you know how my daughter would respond to that? She would respond with, dog. Like, that's what she would respond with, because she has like a five-word vocabulary right now. And so like, I would just be talking way, way over her head. In the same way, I feel like as we kind of talk about this topic for tonight, it's not like, 
marriage or money or sex where it's like, oh, yeah, like I can all completely relate. Or I can be, oh, yeah, it's exactly like this. And no, like this, this is way above kind of any of our pay grades to discuss. But in the midst of all of these challenges, here's the really great news, um, is that Jesus, who we believe is fully God, fully man, voluntarily decides to enter into a, a trial with Satan. And in that, what you see, just, just like a good parent, in many ways for a child who struggles to understand, helps make the unseen seen, and helps make the invisible visible for the sake of that child's protection, so Jesus voluntarily goes out into the wilderness to take on Satan, to show you and I the very real danger that exists around us on a day-in, day-out basis, and areas of life that really matter the most. And so that's what we're going to see Jesus do. Uh, Before we jump into the passage, I feel like the best way for me maybe to uh, kind of provide a, a a larger framework of what we're going to discuss tonight. It's with a quote um, by a scholar that many of you have probably heard of named C.S. Lewis. Um, It's always funny to me when um, you you bring up this topic of Satan and demons and spiritual things. And and a lot of times, I think particularly in a city, like Denver's one of the most educated cities in the United States. And so um, because like everybody took an intro to, uh, you know, anthropology course, they're like, well, wait a second. I remember that time back in college where we learned about that tribe out in the middle of nowhere and they thought there were demons killing all their children, but it was really a fever, and all they needed was Tylenol, and therefore, like, Satan doesn't exist. Aha! Like, I took an, you know, Anthropology 101, you know, intelligent people don't believe in stuff like this. I always point people, in the conversation like that, I always point people to C.S. Lewis, um, author, scholar, professor at both Cambridge and Oxford, one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century, who believes so much about the relevance and the imminence of a threat like this one that we're going to talk tonight. He actually wrote an entire book about it. It's one of the most well-known books uh, of the last century or so called The Screwtape Letters. And here's what Lewis did as he introduced kind of the threat of Satan and demons to his readers. And I believe it's a great introduction for tonight as well. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So what Lewis is saying is, as we think about this topic, there's a spectrum with two extremes, and we kind of want to walk a middle road. So on one extreme is the materialist who you know, is educated sort of beyond their intelligence, and consequently they look at anything beyond what they can kind of sense with the scientific method and say, uh, because I can't see it or sense it, it does not exist. Uh, the other extreme is the person who's kind of a religious nut job who blames every bad thing in the world on Satan and demons and spiritual attacks. So like you overdraft uh, your bank account for the third time in the month, and you're like, the devil did it. It's like, no, your poor financial management did it. The fact that you don't have a budget did it. The demons did not make you do it. Like, the demons did not, you know, if you drop your iPhone and it cracks, um, it's not Satan. It's probably the fact that you were not willing to put a case on your iPhone because you liked the way it felt when you put it in your pocket, and you thought you were going to be the exception, and you weren't the exception, and your iPhone screen cracked. That wasn't the devil. Like, it was just poor lifestyle choices, okay? So those are the two extremes that we're operating between. One, there are no Satan and demons. Uh, the other extreme, Satan and demons are behind everything that's going on, and we want to wor- walk a third and middle road, which I think is really offered in this passage uh, as we kind of work through this paradigm. So let's look at the text and look at verse 12. What we're first going to see is the limitation of Satan. So he's not behind everything, and we see this as Jesus is sent into the wilderness. Look at verse 12. The Spirit... That's God the Holy Spirit, immediately drove him, that's Jesus, 
out into the wilderness. So if you remember last week, Jesus has been uh, baptized. God the Father has affirmed his baptism. God the Spirit has uh, basically commissioned him, approved of him, sent God the Son out for the work of the gospel. And now God the Spirit is sending God the Son out in the wilderness to do work with Satan. I mean, look at this. Let's break it down. Read it very carefully. The Spirit, so the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, immediately, notice, notice the urgency there, drove him out. Really, it's hard for us to get the full meaning of what that Greek word is. It's the Greek word ekbalo, and it has almost a violent connotation. It's like, I throw somebody out. It's like, almost like throwing somebody out of your house. The Spirit, God the Spirit, sends, throws out God the Son into the wilderness. And when uh, original readers would have seen that God the Son was going into the wilderness, uh, the readers would have known this means serious business. A war is about to go down. Now, Here's what's really interesting to me that you see in this scene, is I think a lot of times when we think about Satan and demons, um, because I feel like so much of the betrayal of Satan and demons in culture is kind of like outlandish. You know, like if you checked out a Redbox this weekend, like half of the movies at Redbox are possession movies. I don't know why, I don't know who watches these things, but apparently there's a demand for them. And every single one of those movies, I can't even watch them anymore because I really believe this is real stuff, but like every single one of those movies typically goes along the lines of, you know, the the girl, the house, the family pet gets possessed, some poor Catholic priest gets sent in there, he has to kind of give the right incantations, the right prayers, say things the right way, stand on one leg, hold his, you know, rosary in a particular way, and maybe, just maybe he'll win. Almost what's communicated in that, that God the Father and Satan are raging against one another, and it is a cosmic battle of such that is similar to, like, two teams playing in the Super Bowl, and we're not really sure who's going to win, and we're hoping that God can hit a last-minute field goal to secure the victory as time expires. That's all you see in the scene, right? That's the way I would think as I read the scene. You know, I think, like, oh, man, like, God and Satan are doing war against one another, and God sends Jesus, and Jesus is like, all right, I got this. And he goes down there, and then Satan's like, you don't got this. Like, I'm going to trick you to come out in the wilderness. And Jesus gets tricked out in the wilderness, and he almost gets tempted. And like, oh, my God. But no, like, what, who sends God the Son out into the wilderness? God does. Like, he doesn't get tricked. He voluntarily goes out into the wilderness, now, the question then is why? Well, we'll get there. I'm, I'm glad you're asking that. But l- let me just pause. Um, hold that question in your mind because let me, let me just pause here and make, uh, I, I, just, I felt like I had to say this in the morning crew as well. So let me pa- pause and then we'll go on to, to verse 13. I really don't want to give like a comprehensive philosophical explanation of the problem of evil and why you've been through what you've been through. I don't feel like that's the point of what we're after tonight. But here's what I do know is I know that some of you in this room have suffered tremendously over the last year. The nature of urban living is that we have an unusually high concentration of brokenness in and around us. And many of you, many of you that we love so, so dear have suffered tremendously over the past year, or you will suffer tremendously in the coming year. I feel like one of my jobs as a pastor is to help you think well about doing life in a broken and fallen world. And I feel like, here's the thing, is I, I feel like for some of us, um, at least for me, when I suffer, I've shared very transparently about what the last year looked like in our own lives. When I suffered, I tended to think kind of one of two things. One, um, Satan is winning. Or two, 
God is in control, but he's punishing me for something very specific. Now, I'm not saying that Satan doesn't have teeth. We'll talk about that here next. I'm not saying that sometimes the reason we suffer is not because we just make really stupid decisions. Again, like, I mean, sometimes we just bring terrible consequences on ourselves because we just make bad life decisions. But here's where I do take some confidence, because I think this is the case for some of you who have suffered or are suffering tremendously right now or will in this coming year. When I look at the sinless Son of God sent out into the wilderness for the sake of living out the mission of the gospel, what I see is that sometimes suffering isn't punishment, but rather preparation. And I think, I don't think I know, (laughs) that for some of us, for all of us, we don't really like to think of God that way. Like, we tend to like to think of God almost like a cosmic grandfather who does nothing other than, like, give us warm treats and milk and is like, have a safe, comfortable, easy life. But we, being orthodox in our faith, we do not believe in God the Son, the Spirit, and God the Grandfather. We believe in God the Son, the Spirit, and God the Father. And God, like a good father, trains and refines and, and, and molds us into the men and women that we are meant to be to make a difference for him in the spheres of influence that he has graciously entrusted us with. And sometimes one of his greatest instruments of preparation for his mission is suffering. I've just seen that a lot. Sometimes God presses deeply in on us before he uses us mightily in an outward fashion. And again, I don't think that's the explanation always for why we go through what we go through, but I think the beautiful news about Jesus, like Jesus did not suffer so that we never suffer. Like we will suffer in a broken and fallen world, but Jesus suffered so that our suffering is no longer meaningless or pointless. And it all can be redeemed underneath the cross of Christ, particularly when it's seen through the lens of preparation to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it's exactly what God the Father is doing in the life of the God the Son right here. Now, second, Jesus doesn't just go out into the wilderness, but Jesus is tempted as well. And you see this in verse 13. It's essentially a warning to say, like, okay, Satan's not behind everything, uh, but he is real. He is a reality. If you ever saw the movie The Usual Suspects, you know, it gives the very firm warning that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. That is a very popular uh, modern take in terms of Satan and demons. And what you see in a scene like this one is we need to be on guard. If you look at verse 13, it says, And he, that's Jesus, was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And so what we see, we've said this already, Jesus has come to establish the kingdom of God, the very nature and essence of a new kingdom being established is there is already a kingdom in place. So we've said Jesus has landed on enemy-occupied territory, and there's always a fight in response when new kingdoms come to be established. And Satan is, in many ways, going to show that he is real and he is active and he is personal in the world. Now, uh, we're going to talk a lot about Satan and demons throughout this series because they pop up throughout the gospel, according to Mark, uh, fairly often. But tonight, um, really, let me just kind of say two things in terms of what we're going to do as we kind of introduce this. Uh, The first is, one of the things we said in the series is we can't cover everything, and so we're going to try to kind of step up our game with the resources that we put uh, on our blog. So tomorrow, I will put on our blog a three-part, it's like three or four hours long, systematic theology of Satan and demons done by a guy named Wayne Grudem, who's a brilliant theologian. And so you got four hours to kill this week. 
Knock yourself out, okay? Um, he does a better explanation than I could ever do. So just know that. That'll be there if you want to learn more. Uh, second, all I want to do tonight is basically give kind of a simple introduction, a foundation in terms of thinking rightly about Satan and his work uh, in the world. And I just want to give you kind of two simple principles that emerge from the scriptures that will help you kind of have a healthy foundation for what we're going to build upon uh, in the coming weeks. So here's the first. The first is the Bible teaches that Satan is real, that he is real. He is a prevalent character in the story of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and really everywhere in between. And where he comes from, what the Bible teaches is that God created everything. He made everything and he made it good, and he also created the spiritual realm, and he created the spiritual realm to be good. He, as he created the spiritual realm, he created angels, angels meaning messengers who were meant to communicate his glory and God's supremacy in the universe. He created the universe with a particular hierarchy. He is at the top of the cosmic food chain because he is the one being in the universe who possesses the essence to stand at that rightful place to sit on the throne. And just as we as human beings have decided to try to usurp his authority, we try to play God rather than allow God to be God over our lives, so it appears that angels did the same. In fact, Jude uh, verse 6 talks about this, and it says, And the angels who not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So Satan and demons were created by God to be messengers of humanity about his glory, and they rebel, and they instead try to usurp his authority and undermine his, his authority and glory as well. We see Satan is described as the leader of the revolution. He is the leader of the demons. And when he's referred to this name in verse 13, it's simply a Hebrew word meaning the adversary um, who will be very adverse to you and I as well. Now, why does this kind of theological introduction matter? Well, with this first kind of understanding that he's real, here's why this matters. Is that you and I do not do life in peacetime. You and I, we live in wartime. And knowing the difference between living in peacetime and wartime makes all the difference. Living in a time, or understanding the difference between understanding I'm not opposed and I am opposed makes all the difference. I feel like the best way I can explain this um, is always sports. That's always my go-to. And for any of you who play sports, you know that there's a very big difference between um, just practicing or having fun or goofing off with your buddies and not playing against anybody and then playing in a game, right? So, like, if there's not another team on the court, like, what do you do? Like, you mess around. You're, like, you know, you're playing horse. You're laying down on your back. Like, hey, you think I can hit a shot? Like, you know, granny style, backwards from midcourt. <laughs> like, look how far he missed. He, like, hit that little girl. He almost hit that little girl over there. Isn't that hilarious? But, like, when an opponent steps on the court, you better not do that stuff because your coach would not, like, figuratively, he would literally kill you. If you did that in a game, why? Because it makes all the difference if you're being opposed or not. And here's my burden. My burden as one of your pastors is that many of you think you're doing life in peacetime when it's actually wartime. And consequently, because of that, a lot of what it is that we talk about in terms of prayer, in terms of reading your Bible, in terms of being committed to the church, in terms of prioritizing the gathering, doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you're doing life in peacetime and you're just simply trying to almost kind of integrate this church religious thing into the rest of the incredibly fun activities to do in Denver, which there are a lot of really fun activities to do in Denver. 
whatever. But I'm going to be honest with you. If it's peacetime and I'm picking between going to a pro sports event or going to the mountains and church, like especially on daylight savings time, uh, particularly in the morning. So you guys are a little bit off the hook for this. But particularly in the morning, like I'm just going to be honest. Like if it's peacetime, I'm picking the mountains like 75% of the time. But if it's wartime, and there are winners and there are losers, and the consequences are eternal in nature, then the reality is, is I live differently as a consequence. And you will not know what your prayer life is for. You will not know what reading your Bible on a consistent basis is for. You will not know what being a committed covenant member of a church is for. You will not know what um, gathering on a Sunday is for until you know that you do life in a wartime environment. It's why we're burdened. It's like we're not just one more activity trying to compete with other nonprofits in the city. We are fighting for you to win in the areas of life that matter the most. And it's time to stop fooling around. It's the nicest way I censored myself in terms of what I really wanted to say. Um, Second, he's not just real, but he's more crafty and subtle than you'd think. He's more crafty and subtle than you'd think. So here's the deal. As I think that one of the great disservices of the way that Satan and demons is portrayed uh, in the media is he's kind of, again, portrayed at kind of one of two ends of a spectrum. So on one end, you've got Satan portrayed in South Park or he's played by John Lovitz, you know, on Saturday Night Live a few years ago. And it's kind of like, oh, he's like one big goofball. Isn't he cute? Like... Yeah, like, we could, like, grab a beer sometime. Like, he seems like a harmless dude. Uh, so you get that end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum is, again, like, the possession exorcism movie that comes out every other week. Again, I don't know how, like, who goes sees and sees these, but there's, like, 12 made a year. And it's kind of communicated that Satan is only behind the crazy and the frightening and the outlandish. And what happens is because we think he's either a goofball or because we think we're okay because, like, the bed isn't shaking and blood isn't falling down from the ceiling, that we're like, I'm good. Like, I'm not impacted by this. This isn't that big of a deal. And I think that's where Scripture has to become the lens through which we interpret our culture and spiritual things. Because you know the first word that is used, the first adjective that is used to describe Satan in the Bible. He's crafty. Like, that's the way he's described. He's described as being tremendously crafty. If you look at Genesis, when he first appears on the scene, he's described as being the most crafty of all. And even the first words that come out of his mouth is, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we talk about this passage all the time, but some of you are new. And what we say in this is the way that Satan is exhibiting his craftiness is not that he's trying to get a woman to bite into an apple. Like, that's not a huge deal. What he's doing, what's at the root of that question, did God really say, is at the root of every sin. It's the question as to whether or not God really is who he says he is. 
And Satan, a lot of times, he doesn't come head on at that. He uses all sorts of avenues. I mean, for the woman, he's coming to her and saying, like, wait a second, like, this God, like, you know who he is, but, I mean, is he really going to make you happy? Is he really going to make you feel fulfilled? Does he really have your best interests in mind? Heck no, he doesn't. You got to take control. You got to take the reins. You got to play God rather than allow God to be God over your life. You know what's best for you. If you obey him in the areas of life that matter the most, if you obey him with your money, if you obey him with your sexuality, if you obey obey him with your life plans, if you obey him with your priorities or your schedule, you're going to be miserable. You've got to take control. You've got to play God. Did God really say? And it's at the root and the foundation of every sin. I mean, as I think a lot about Denver, like the reality is, is if people's, <laughs> if their like dining room tables were shaking Every single time they said a prayer before dinner, like the reality is that a lot more people in Denver would be in church. Like Satan is much smarter and craftier than that. He is totally content to remain anonymous as long as people are making the decision to play God rather than allow God to be God over their lives. And I would just challenge you to think really critically and thoughtfully about this in your own life. Again, like, I don't think Satan's presence in your life is necessarily going to mean that, like, your dog starts, like, flying across the room. Like, I think those are very much the exceptions if they ever happen. I think it's going to be much more like you, I don't know, like, it's going to be you having a struggle, having a difficulty, you reading something, listening to a podcast, getting friends, like, being on the cusp of a relationship that you know isn't good for you and isn't going to lead to you following Jesus and you know what God declares to be true about that relationship and something inside of you being like, look, I'm not the rule, I'm the exception, this is gonna go fine and if I obey God here, I'm gonna be alone for the rest of my life and so I gotta I got date this person, I don't care what the consequences are, I really know and I have my best interest in mind after all. Satan is completely content to remain anonymous and to remain in the nooks and the crannies and remain in the shadows as long as he's convincing you to play God. And I would look very thoughtfully and critically and zoom in on the areas where it is very difficult for you to believe the truth of the scripture, where it is very difficult for you to obey because you don't think God has your own interests in mind. And I would warn you that something supernatural might be at work. Not just the depravity that exists within our own heart, but Satan almost like lighter fluid, ignites the, the flame of sin that exists in our hearts and escalates us to do things that are far worse and far less wise than we ever thought we were capable of. Now, it's not hopeless, okay? So that's not the point. It's not like you're all evil, there is no hope. Um, no, no. There's a beautiful truth in terms of how this story ends. And if you look at this, it ends on the second part of verse 13 with Jesus being victorious. Jesus being victorious, and consequently we see the defeat of Satan. The way it closes and concludes is the text says, and he was with, that's Jesus, he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, um, I know many of you are taking notes, or you have a Bible in front of you, if you notice, you see where it says, and he was with the wild animals? Here's what's really perplexing about this. Is, you know, there's, there's a multitude of accounts in the Gospels in terms of this scene, the way it goes down. Mark is the shortest uh, by a considerable amount. But it's interesting, Mark does this all the time, where he provides like, shorter accounts 
but he also provides details that nobody else provides. And he also, this is the only time in the Gospels that Mark talks about, or that anybody talks about when this scene goes down, um, Jesus being with the wild animals. Now, a, a lot of people are like, what is going on here? Like, is this supposed to be kind of like a comforting image? Like, there's Jesus being ministered to by angels. He's got like a sweet little wild lamb in his arms, and he's like nurturing it, and like, oh, like this is kind of comforting. It kind of balances out like the evil, demonic stuff. Um, it's interesting. Some people have thought that, but um, historically, it's a lot of times people who are in contexts like our own where we don't really have an understanding of what a wild animal is. Um, like, so for example, I was on Friday, uh, I took my family to uh, the zoo at, at City Park, and at the zoo, I saw this little kid um, feed a squirrel a peanut. For me, that's what I think of when I think of wild animal, right? Like, I think that. I think, like, golden retriever off its leash. Oh, my gosh, it might lick somebody in the face. Somebody get that dog. Like, in this context, that's not what they're thinking of. Like, wild animals are packs of ravenous beasts, that devour and kill. In fact, one of the reasons in this day that city walls were so important around cities uh, was to keep wild animals out because they would devour and destroy. And in fact, as this is being penned, what most historians believe is that Emperor Nero, as he is suppressing the Christian movement, is throwing Christians to their death via wild animals. So original reader sees this and is like, this is not good. This is not good whatsoever. So why would this detail be included? Well, here's the interesting thing, is even though Mark writes shorter, he is a brilliant craftsman in terms of how he tells these stories. And in all of this, what he is trying to proclaim is a beautiful truth that we do not need to despair or be afraid, but instead Jesus has been victorious. Now you say, like, well, where does that come from? Well, it comes partially from the wild animals. It also comes just previously, if you look, it mentions that Jesus was in the wilderness for how long? 40 days. Now here's what would happen as these kind of little uh, uh, linguistic indicators are being dropped by Mark, all of a sudden an original reader would have said, oh my gosh, I see what's happening. Jesus Christ has stepped down out of heaven into history, and he has been victorious where humans have historically been defeated. And so, as original readers are reading this, as they think about their buddy who was thrown to the wild animals and devoured and their finiteness leads to their death. Here's Jesus Christ victorious, proclaiming he is the creator, proclaiming that he is sovereign over creation itself because by him it was all made and he reigns supreme. Jesus is referred to as taking on this battle for 40 days out in the wilderness. You know who else wandered in the wilderness for 40 or so, not days, but years? Israel, the people of God. And they failed, like over and over and over and over and over again. And what you're seeing is Israel, the true faithful, the true people of God, are being reduced down to a single man, Jesus Christ, where the people of God failed in the wilderness for 40 years. The Son of God succeeded in the wilderness for 40 days. Even this should rise up connotations of the very first temptation that takes place in the entirety of Scripture. Our father, our first father, the first Adam, fails the test in the garden at the hands of Satan. But Jesus, who later in the scriptures is referred to as the second Adam, passes the test out in the wilderness. And what Mark is proclaiming through his very careful craftsmanship of this story 
It's where the first Adam failed, the second Adam has been victorious. Where the people of God failed in the wilderness, the Son of God has thrived in the wilderness. Where your friends have died because of their finiteness when they are thrown to the wild animals, the Son of God has reigned supreme because he is the creator, stepped down and doing life and restoring everything amongst his creation, even humanity's relationship with nature. And at the heart of all of this, is Jesus has won. He's won. And so we're not terrified or afraid. Or we don't freak out about this. We're, we're, we're cautious. Our posture towards Satan and demons is that we say, okay, like on one hand, like we take a cautious posture knowing that he's real and he has real influence on the world. But at the same time, we don't live this terrified, frightened life as if like we're not sure who's going to win between God and evil. Like, God wins. Jesus wins. You see this right in here. Maybe, maybe the best way to kind of capture this um, is it made me think um, when I was a kid, uh, when I was like six or seven years old, my brother, who's actually up in the sound booth, we were talking about this story this, this uh, week to make sure we had the details right. Um, he was like three or four. And uh, we grew up in Virginia in kind of this wooded area. And any of you who've done life in a wooded area that know that a natural consequence of doing life in a wooded area is that um, snakes a lot of times come onto your property. Now, for us as kids, the way we were always taught to handle snakes is you just avoid them. Like, the vast majority of them are poisonous, and, you know, they get rid of bad things in the yard and all this sort of stuff. You just, you just leave them alone. You don't want to be doing battle with a snake. Um, but I remember this one time, we hear this kind of rustling and this kind of almost tapping at the back of our garage to look out the window and to see this giant copperhead trying to get into our house, uh, which a copperhead is a poisonous snake. Uh, in Virginia. We freaked out. Me and my brother scream like little girls, snake, you know, like running everywhere. Oh my gosh, snake. And uh, we go get our mom because our dad is actually away at work. Uh, my mom does not want to deal with this whatsoever. She's like, but this thing is like not giving up. It wants to get in the house. And my mom, like a good mama bear does, is like, I'm going to go do battle with this copperhead. And she does. Now, I don't know if I'm, like, exaggerating this because I'm several decades removed from this, but it was epic in its nature. <laughs> my mom goes out there, and she's got a garden hoe, and my brother and I are watching from the window, like, oh, my gosh, like, we don't want mom to die, like, at the hands of this, not the hands, snakes don't have hands, but at the, at the, at the fangs of this, of this copperhead. And so my mom, like, I don't know if this happened, but this is the way at least I kind of remember it in my mind. Like, the snake is slithering, and she, like, throws down the garden hoe, and, uh, you know, slithers this way, and then she throws down the garden hoe, and it slithers that way, and it's just think, 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 until thunk. And she decapitates this copperhead in front of my six-year-old eyes. My mom is my hero because of this. Like, mom, 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 mom. As if that's not devastating enough, what I remember after that snake's head was cut off, um, if you've ever had to undergo that unpleasant, very unpleasant experience, um, what happens sometimes when a snake's head is severed from its body? when it's just happened, it keeps biting, which is even, like, more traumatizing. Don't email me if you can't sleep tonight, okay? Like, I've already had the nightmares about this, so, yeah, sorry, not sorry. 
And as I think back on that image, when I see that snake's head biting as it's severed from its body, I feel like that's really the image that best captures the way we think about Satan and demons in response to a text like this one. That on one hand, we approach Satan and demons with extreme caution because like, Satan still has teeth. He can still bite. But he bites from a posture of assured defeat. And as a consequence, we have caution more than anything. We have confidence that our Savior has stepped in and he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And where we failed and where we're weak and where our first parents failed tests again and again and again, Jesus, Savior of all mankind, crushes the head of the serpent as was promised all the way back when the serpent makes, first makes his appearance back in Genesis. And so what do we practically do with this? Well, it's kind of like, I feel it the same way as I did last week, where I'm like, I'm not sure exactly how to apply this. But here's what I do know, is I feel like even though we live in this highly scientific, skeptical, materialistic age, like the reality is, is that for many of you in this room, like Satan and demons are a very frightening thing. Even some of you have a very personal exposure, and you haven't told anybody because you don't think people will understand or they'll write you off as a crazy person, or you just don't talk about it, right? Like, you can't be at your work, and people are talking about things they're afraid of, and, you know, your colleague mentioned spiders, and that person mentioned snakes, and you're like, you know what really scares me? Demons. Like, that would lead to a very awkward pause in the lunchroom. But you feel it, like, even though you don't admit it, you feel it. And let me say something to you. Where you are afraid Jesus has been victorious and offers confidence. Where, where some of you have seen the real tangible impact of Satan and demons in your life, and even some of the most practical, tangible, unspectacular, stupid ways that you have messed up your own life. Jesus steps in and he has crushed the head of the serpent and he is going to redeem and restore this world back to the way it was originally intended to be. And as a consequence, you do not have to be afraid anymore. You can live from a posture of victory. Because by grace through faith, at the cross, Jesus didn't just die. He got back up again, declaring he's victorious over Satan, sin, death, and hell. And so here's what I'm going to do. Is we're going to respond. We're going to respond through the taking of communion. We're going to respond through worship, through song. We're going to respond through prayer and giving thanks. Because that's, what else is it that we can do? What else is it that we can say other than, Thank you, and let me live like this is true in my life. So let's pray, and then we'll respond accordingly. God, we thank you so much. Um, That you are strong where we are weak. That you have been victorious where we've been defeated. That you undo the sad story of humanity where we fail over and over and over again. And even in an area of life that's kind of difficult to talk about, like Satan and demons, you step in and provide for us a glimpse into the threat that is really all around us. But it does not leave us with overwhelming fear, but confidence. Not because of what we've done, because of what you've done in our place. And so God, I pray that we would respond wholeheartedly with thanksgiving and even just thinking critically, like, I feel like it's hard to maybe connect this to the practical areas of life, but so many of us, we are living with tremendous fear, we are living with tremendous doubt, we are living with tremendous darkness, we are doing things that if anybody knew about it, we know it would radically change the way they think about us. And God, let 
the light that is secured at the cross spill into the darkness and bring hope and healing. We ask these things in the name of the victorious one, Jesus. Amen.